0: First of all, I got to thank Jeff Swank for giving me some peanut M&Ms. That's just an amazing thing. For those of you who don't know, Jeff did our uh, building maintenance for quite some time around here. And every month when he came in to check the building and the fire extinguishers and all the different things that were going on, he would drop off a mega pack of peanut M&Ms. And so thank you, Jeff, for contributing to my 2020 weight gain. And uh, I, haven't, I haven't yet gotten rid of it, but uh, the, the peanut m and M certainly helped my psychology, I think, even if they didn't help my waistline. Uh, so this morning, what we're going to do is um, I thought for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about how God does new things in our lives. And what does it mean for us to hold on to the one solid promise that God has given to us, even when everything else is new? And so I challenged you with this phrase. I said, I will hold on to the promise as I welcome the changes as outlined by Jesus. Not every change is a good change, but the changes that are filtered through what Jesus is doing in this world are good. And we should welcome them and embrace them because God's promise is going to stay the same. 17 years ago this week, my family moved to Lafayette and we incorporated Lafayette Community Church. But at that time, it was Southside Church on January 6th of all dates. We incorporated Southside Church, and uh, that was a year before we had our first public launch gathering. And so it was just me in like our apartment building as we were waiting for our house to be built. And uh, so what I thought I would do is share with you some stories over those last few years, over these last 17 years, because even though lots of things change, some things don't. And so when everything else changes, it's important for us to remember that some things don't change. So today I'm going to share with you some old things, some things old. Okay, so what I've got is I'm going to tell you some stories to try to illustrate who we have been being so far as a church and who we should continue to be moving forward. Um, and To get started, Charlie, you can just flip through. I don't have any notes up here, so you can just keep the next one up there ready to remind me because I I have no idea how well this is going to go. But I want to start with this idea. When we first got the dream of starting a church here in Lafayette, one of the key things we wanted to accomplish, one of the key things we wanted to accomplish is to communicate to people in Lafayette how much they were loved. And so we always wanted to be a church that would inspire people to know how much they are loved. That was a major goal of ours. Before we moved here, Jen and I were in an assessment center, which was evaluating us to see whether or not we were the kind of people who could get a new church started. And in that assessment center, we made some friends, and one of my friends is now a pastor in Colorado, but before then he started a church in St. Louis. And uh, he told us once when we were asking him the question, we were like, what motivates you to start a church? What motivates you? And I believe he was the one who gave me the, gave me this answer. But one of the guys in my team back then told me that there are just too many people who don't know Jesus loves them. They don't know how much Jesus loves them. They know about church. They know about Bible. They know about Christmas. They know about Easter, but they don't know how much Jesus loved them. And so one of the things we wanted to do as a church was to inspire people from the very beginning to know how much they are loved. And so go ahead and put that next one up, Charlie. I've got a bunch of uh, things up here that I just want to tell you a couple stories. So the first year that we were here in town, before we even started our church, I mean, we were organizationally a church, but we hadn't done any Sunday morning worship gatherings yet. It was just a small group of us that were meeting in our home and in other places around the city. And we decided that we were going to do something on July 4th of that year to let people know about us. And so we made a bunch of Frisbees. Kyle, do you remember how many Frisbees we made? It was like 500. We made a bunch of boxes of Frisbees, purple Frisbees with a spiral on the front that I think it was supposed to be metaphorical or something like don't get your life spun out of control, uh, Southside church was, you know, was the logo was the logo on that. And then we went to the Purdue, um, hill where they do the fireworks and the, uh, number of years ago, Slater Hill, that's what it's called. And we passed out these hundreds of Frisbees just to random people around to tell them about a church that had no Sunday morning worship experiences yet. We're just telling them about us. We were all wearing tie dyed shirts that had the same logo on it. And we're passing these all out. And then that uh, fall at Thanksgiving on Black Friday, we made a whole bunch of plastic mugs that said Southside Church, and I recruited a coffee shop in town to donate coffee to us. But no one um, would make that much hot chocolate for us. And so we bought coolers and stuff. And Jen spent basically all day on Black Friday at our house boiling water and then driving it over to the South Side Walmart so that then we could make hot chocolate there. And I... I have photos of these things, but I didn't want to show you the photos because if I saw the photos, I might not make it through the story. Um, But Kyle was there for that too. And so I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for being here, Kyle. But anyway, so we made hot chocolate and we passed out hot chocolate at the Southside Walmart. Um, to all the Black Friday shoppers who came that day. And they're like, oh, a new church? And they're like, where are you meeting? We said, we don't know. They said, when are you meeting? We don't know. But we just want to shower you with some smiles here on Black Friday because that was back in the day when Black Friday started on Friday at like 5 a.m., And so we were there to try to make sure people felt welcome and comfortable. It was one of the first years Walmart did a 24 hour thing because there was a PlayStation for sale or whatever. But anyway, so we were passing out hot chocolate and we were just trying to let people know that we cared about them. And then we sent out postcards, postcards announcing our church, but announcing our church in a way that we wanted to communicate to them a spark of hope. Here's a here's a place that might give you some answers. Here's a place that might give you a place where you would feel at home, where you would feel comfortable. And then after sending out all those postcards, I built a relationship with a guy who worked at WLFI who just wanted our church money. He was an advertising guy. But in the process of our relationship, I eventually had a moment where I got to go out to um, nine Irish brothers with him. He bought me a meal and I shared Jesus with him. And we got this close to starting a discipleship relationship with each other before he changed jobs and moved away. And but and that was the last time we bought ads from WLFI cuz I was really trying to you know I was really trying to get this guy but in the process of all of that at our grand opening down at We are Ridge Elementary School we had about 150 people show up. 150 people who were hungry and hopeful 150 people who were hopeful that there was something that might speak to them, something that might uh, unlock something in their heart that they knew they needed to be unlocked but didn't know how. And this was something in the early, early days of our church that I want to communicate to you. And it is that for us, serving people was marketing and marketing could be serving people that by sending someone a postcard to let them know they were loved, even though that's direct mail marketing, we tried to do it in such a way that people would know that someone cares about them. And as a result of some of those postcards and advertising, there are people in this room today who are here, who came to know Jesus as a result of some of that stuff. But very few of the original group of people are still around. And that's that's standard fare for churches. There's a lot of transition that happens. But I want you to know that for us, when we got started, it was this mentality that serving people was marketing and marketing could be done in a way that inspires and serves people and shows them that they are loved. In the last number of years, we haven't had as much money for that. And so we've dropped off some of that. And uh, maybe that's something that needs to be brought up again in the future. I don't know. But Then I want to show you this other list of things that we did, because you need to know a few other things about our church's history. We did a fashion show in the early years of our church, a fashion show for like three years in a row. And the point of the fashion show was primarily we had a lady in the church, Kyle's mom who um, was a fundraiser by training and she wanted to be a fundraiser here in Lafayette to help out the church. And she, so she came to me and said, I know a great way to raise some money. We hold this fashion show, we have auctions and we get sponsors and we charge tickets and all this kind of stuff. And it's a huge amount of fun. And I said, sounds like an interesting and fun idea on one condition. Every dollar we raise has to go away from our church. We're going to be a fundraiser for something else. Because God's going to take care of our church. If we're going to do a fundraising effort, it's going to be for someone else. And so we partnered over three years. We partnered with a variety of different agencies in town. One year it was Carry Home for Children. One year I believe it was the Salvation Army. But we raised money through this fashion show to give away. And then we did a Christmas generosity project. We launched that and did it for multiple years. We gave one Christmas season, we gave $10,000 to the Salvation Army. One Christmas season, we gave $10,000 just shy of that. It was like $9,800 or something to what was then called Matrix Life Care Center. And uh, then we raised this money over these few years and we gave it away. And then we did what we call the season of giving. Where we spent, I believe it was $1,000 to buy gift cards to Walmart that we gave to the people of the church to go and randomly give to people in the community. And we had all these cards uh, on the wall. They were clipped on the wall. And we said to people every Sunday for four weeks, we said, if you know someone who could use this card, or if you just want to give a card to a random stranger, grab one off the wall and go give them. Give them away. And over that Christmas season, we gave away $1,000 worth of gift cards to people just to show them we loved them. Then we bought this building right next door to a strip club. And then we bought the strip club building, but in the meantime, we sent people over to the strip club to meet and show love and care to the women who worked over there. Built relationships with them and spared them a huge amount of pain in the process. And as a result, even the purchase of these buildings was something that we were trying to serve people. And then the last one, service Sundays. I've had people in this church complain about the fact that every now and then we don't meet on Sunday and instead we send people out into the neighborhood to serve people and pick up trash and, and knock on doors and pray for people if that's necessary or sometimes do some remodeling. And that's part of the DNA of this church to serve other people. It has always been part of our fundamental principles to say, we want to be a group of people who show people how much they're loved. And sometimes that means not doing something for ourselves so that we can do something for someone else. And so service Sundays, I know Matt Bastian is eager to get them going again. And so as soon as the weather warms up in the springtime, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a couple on the schedule. And I highly encourage you to not consider that a Sunday off that more than any other Sunday is a Sunday on. And the Sunday that we invest in doing what God has put us here on this earth to do. So that was the first thing. We want to be a church that loves people and lets people know how much they're loved. The second thing is that we are a church that makes decisions by considering outsiders. We don't make decisions by just involving the people who are already part of the church and saying, what do you want? And what are you interested in? And what's so interesting to you that you, know, you want it to be part of the church? Although we care for you and love you, We make our decisions by considering the needs of the outsiders. And I'll tell you a little story about that. When we first moved to town, I told you, we incorporated as Southside Church. Because it was on the south side of Lafayette that all of the growth was happening. All the people were moving in. Benjamin Crossing was a neighborhood that was just getting built. Jen and I moved into a neighborhood that was only in phase two out of four phases. And we moved to the south side. But we started at We Are Ridge Elementary School. And within two months, we then were at Tecumseh Junior High School. And then within a couple months, three months after that, we were in the Holiday Inn downtown. And then at Easter of that first year, so it was like our first anniversary as a church, they told us we couldn't be in the Holiday Inn because the NCAA basketball tournament was happening and the women were staying there, so we had to go somewhere else. So we rented the gigantic Long Center. And just struggled to get 80 people there that Sunday for that Easter Sunday. But by that summer, we were then in the long center. And we had progressively moved from the south side to the north side. Because the long center is in the northern side of the numbers of the city. You know, if you're at the Holiday Inn, you're on the south side of South Street. But if you're at the long center, you're on the north side of South Street. And it no longer works. And so we decided we needed to change the name. We couldn't be Southside Church anymore. So this is how we did it. We did a survey. We gave people pieces of paper with questions on them, and we sent them throughout the community knocking on doors. And the questions we asked were, do you go to a church? If you don't go to a church, which of these churches would you go to? And then we had a list of names on the paper. And the names were names of three categories. Names of churches that existed in this area. So there was covenant. There was faith. Names of churches that existed. We also had names of churches that Christians think are cool. Church names like Journey Church or The Rock of Lafayette or Rock Church. You know, names that Christians think are cool. We had them on there. And then we also had the boring names. We had names like Lafayette Community Church. And uh, we, we had that on the list. And so we, we sent out all these people. We did the survey. They came back to us. And it was remarkable what we found. When we asked people the question of if they go to church, that changed what their answer was on the other question. Which church would you go to? Of all the people who said they already go to church, they picked one of the cool church names. They picked Journey, Discovery, Rock, something metaphorical. But of all the people who said they don't go to church, they gave us two categories of answers. They gave us one category was I'll go to faith because my coworker invited me. Or, I'll go to, I don't go to church, but if I went to a church, I'd go to covenant because my co-worker invited me or I have a friend who goes there. But of all the people who had not been invited to a church and didn't currently go to a church, it was overwhelming, like in the 90% they picked Lafayette Community Church. And we asked them why, and they said, because I like the idea of a church for the community. And we said, that's our name, because that's our motivation. Our motivation is not to be the coolest, newest, hippest church for the already Christians. Our motivation is to be the church that someone who never goes to church and has never been invited to church might possibly go to. And so we based our decision making on who was outside of the church. Now, I want to share with you the next value that we had, and it's that we make cooperation a central aspect of what we do. We are a church that doesn't say we're in it for ourselves. A lot of times church plants come into an area thinking that we're going to do it right because all the other churches are doing it wrong. And we came into the area saying, no, we're not going to do it right. We're going to do it different. We're going to do it differently to reach the people who aren't currently being reached. We're going to do something differently, but we want to do it cooperatively. And so I put that list up there. These are some of the things that we did. First of all, I shamelessly begged for help. I, when we first moved to town, I called all the pastors I could track down as long as their secretaries would let me get through to the pastor. I tracked down all the pastors I could. And I asked them, can I meet you? Can I steal some money? And can I steal some people? And of all the questions, all those times that I asked, I got a couple very clear answers. Some of them said, yes, I could meet you. And I, I met them, and fewer of them said yes. We'll give you some money. So River City, which was then Assembly of uh, First, First Assembly, yeah, Lafayette First Assembly, at the time they gave us a thousand bucks so I could buy the church's first MacBook so that we could run ProPresenter, the program that we're using to run this. So they gave us a thousand bucks so I could get a MacBook. Community Reform Church, just north on 18th Street a little bit, they let me come and actually be interviewed by their pastor for a few minutes to share what we were doing. And for me to actually say to the congregation, if any of you are interested in possibly helping us out, talk to your pastor and then talk to me. They allowed me to actually do a little bit of headhunting. No one came to our church because of that. But nonetheless, the fact that they allowed me to say those words out loud was just astonishing. And then within the first couple of years, Faith Church gave us uh, money to buy chairs when we finally eventually moved into a place that needed chairs. And later on, they gave us some money so that we could help purchase the buildings next door. They helped us do some of that. And so even though the pastor over at Faith Church, even though Steve Byers and I disagree on a ton of things, the fact that they are willing to cooperate with us on, for the sake of the gospel has always just been really, really impressive to me. And those aren't the only churches that have sent money our way and helped us out because I'm shamelessly willing to beg. Because if they help us, then that's a whole lot better Than me offering to help them because that's threatening for a pastor. For another pastor of another church to offer to help them, they're like, What's your angle? What's your deal? But their helping us allows us to begin to build a connection. And so I just went for it. And then in the process, we built up Innovation Church. How many of you know that Innovation Church started with us? We didn't plant the church. Billy Holden and his family moved to town here because they were planning to plant Innovation Church. They moved to West Lafayette originally, and they were just looking for churches that uh, they could maybe fellowship with or something. And I found out about him and I was like, Billy, you and your family have to join us. You have to be part of us. And from the earliest days of Innovation Church, when they were still in West Lafayette, we, sent, we had Billy and his family as part of our church, and they did ministry with us. Billy was one of our worship leaders, and we sent some of our people with them when they eventually left our church to fully start their thing on Sunday morning. And so we cooperated incubating innovation. I don't say we planted them, but we helped to incubate them. Then I was part of TEAM, the Tippecanoe Evangelical Association of Ministers and Ministries, later changing its name to the Greater Lafayette Gospel Association, and got involved with Fusion, this multi-church youth group that we do. And then finally, I've been part of the Pastors' Alliance over the last couple of years. The only downside of any of these efforts is that they have hinged on me. And so that's something that you guys are going to need to carry on. That's something you guys are going to need to figure out how to step forward and do some of that cooperation stuff. Because so far, we have demonstrated as a church that we're the church that cooperates with other churches. But that's something we need to continue. It's been part of our DNA from the beginning because we don't want to just be the thing on our own doing our own thing. But let's move on. I also wanted to let you know that we are a church that does ministry by community. So from the earliest days of our church, we had small groups meeting in our church, but it wasn't just that these were little groups of people that got together to, to meet and, and have cake and, you know, talk about the Bible or their, their children or whatever. This was a group of people that we always wanted to be a group that did ministry together. And there's this one group that got started like in the second year of our church There was a couple that came to church named Chris and Carrie Barnes. They've recently moved back into town and and I want to recruit them back here, but they've got kids and so they've got other family needs and they live in far West Lafayette. And so it's probably not going to happen. But uh, Chris and Carrie Barnes at the time had no kids, recently gotten married. They were in West Lafayette. They found us as a church when we were still meeting downtown. And for whatever reason, I don't know how it happened. But I was like, Chris, Carrie, you guys have a house, right? And they're like, yeah. And I said, we're going to start a small group there. So we have one in West Lafayette because I wanted one in West Lafayette. So I drove all the way out there every Wednesday night for four weeks to lead a small group with them out there. And then at the end of four weeks, Chris led it for a couple of weeks while I still went. And then at the end of those six weeks, I stopped going. And Chris and Carrie led a small group on their own for a number of months until they left. During the time that they were leading that group though, Carrie's from Joplin, Missouri and the tornado hit Joplin and we were able to send like a semi-truck full of stuff out to Joplin, Missouri to help them because she knew some people and helped us coordinate some of those things. But Chris and Carrie eventually left and they left that group to a, a couple named John and Stacy Poston who led that group for a a number of months, a couple years maybe. And then when they left to go out to California for him to become a professor at Biola University, then uh, Brian and Amanda Schoolcraft led that group. And they started that group to be a service organization. And they started doing uh, meals for the homeless every single Sunday afternoon and built up the group there. In the process, did a whole lot of really amazing discipleship work with the people who were part of that group. But then when they moved away, then it was Joe and Megan Hill who led that same group. And then out of that group, Matt and Danny Bastian, who were part of Joe and Megan's group for a while, they are now leading a group here. And so there's this thread of people, faithful people, who have decided to serve God by serving others. But what you need to know, and this is key, is that that's not just a group that lasted a long time. That's a group that did miracles. I watched these people grow into maturity in ways that I never thought they would. Not one of those leaders, before they became a leader, was a leader that I thought should be the leader. Every one of those leaders, when I first met them, I thought to myself, oh, they got a long way to go. But every one of those leaders of that group has developed into people who I would call miracles of maturity people who have grown in ways I couldn't even imagine. Out of that group came a miracle of a kidney transplant. One of these days, you might hear all the details of the story that I know, but it's just phenomenally miraculous how that worked. And then out of that group grew a great deal of social good. For a number of years, our church was deeply involved in helping uh, feed the homeless people downtown through Lafayette Transitional Housing until a lot of other things changed downtown and that's kind of fallen off. But that's something that we did for a good long time. It's part of our DNA to do ministry in community. But that's not all. There's one more. We keep around here It's our goal to keep Sundays real. And what I mean by that is a couple specific things. There are questions. What questions and one how question. First, we ask the question, what does the Bible really say? It's not a question about, you know, just, hey, this is the thing that I've heard. This is the tradition. This is how how I'm going to explain it to you. What does the Bible actually say for itself? That's been a high focus for us. Second, what does it really mean? Once you truly accurately understand what this is saying, what is it really saying? We focus on the context a lot. We make sure, let the Bible speak for itself in the context of the Bible itself. The third question is how should we feel about it for real? Every Sunday when we do the music around here, it's designed, the music is designed to help us feel something about the truth that we are singing or learning about. Music is that way of connecting truth to emotions. And emotions are biblical. And so we've wanted to help people feel real emotions. And then the question is, well, what should we do about it? For real, not just theoretically, but what should we really do about it? Where should our real loyalties lie in this world around us? How should we really discern the deceptions of the world versus the truth of Scripture? How should we really identify the difference between our own backgrounds and understandings versus what Jesus is leading us into? And so I'm just going to give you a a sideline sort of story about those things in the, the parentheses at the bottom. Fog is the thing that we sometimes use on Sundays and sometimes at Christmas Eve. And some people have asked me uh, questions before about why a church would have a fog machine. It's technically a haze machine, just so you know. It's, and they're different. But why, why a church would use lights and, and stuff like that. And I'll tell you why. You know when you turn on a TV station and you see a bad show, it sticks out to you. And you spend at least a few minutes asking yourself, why is this show so bad? Why is the lighting so bad, the camera work so bad, the acting so bad? Why is this so bad? And you get distracted from the show because you're worried about the quality and you're like, who are these people? And when you go to a concert, if you go to a concert, you walk in and there's lights and there's sound and there's all this stuff and you never think about it because that's just normal. For some reason, we get ourselves into the idea that church is like family. And I'll get to that, church is like family. But church is not like your home with close family, where someone can walk in and you've got your socks on the ground and they're like, listen, it's okay, I've got kids too, I understand. Like, if, you walk, if your friend invites you over to their home and you go into their home and they've got their children's underwear on the ground as you walk in, you very much think to yourself, should not have come. At least should not have come right now. Should have called in advance. Should have, should have shown up in a few minutes or something like that. This is the thing. We live in a world where there's a lot of sub-language that we experience. Language that we don't have in our head, but language that we just experience. When we see a movie or go to a concert or go to someone's house, there's certain things that we expect. And when you enter that place and you don't experience those things then something feels a little bit off. And so one of the reasons we do things like light and stage design and production is that we want to eliminate those things as distractions for the new people who come in. Now, church people who come in, that's a distraction. And they're like, what's going on here? And then they spend some time thinking about these distractions. But non-church people who come in, that's not a distraction. For them, it's just like, okay, this is the way... This is why stuff like this works. But it only matters, it only matters if everything else is really real. If production is production and everything else is also just production, then it doesn't matter at all. But if what's happening in this room is really real, then the production just allows more people to experience it. Just allows more people to experience it. And on that front, I need to let you know that you are the real. What happens on stage is mostly real and also produced. But what happens out here is only real. And if it's not real, then it's not real. And so every single Sunday, whatever happens on stage, whatever happens, we need to be people, you all need to be people who come here and say, my goal is to hear what the Bible really says, to understand what it really means, to, to feel how it really should feel, and to get myself prepared to do for real what it really tells me to do. And if every Sunday you all are real like that, then this whole thing is gonna be really, really amazing. And everything I've shared with you so far is just basically the core values we started the church with. Here are two verses. By numbers, there's more than two verses, but two passages of scripture that form the foundation and the core of everything our church has ever been. It is first of all, Jesus says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These I've tried to describe over the years as the vertical and horizontal components of the cross. The vertical component of the cross is my relationship with God. God is God. He is God. And he alone is God. And I have been created by him. And so God is someone I always look up and then I allow God to do whatever he needs to do to shape me like a, like the hands of a potter on his clay to press and to mold and to shape. And I at the foot of the cross am going to experience pain and hardship, but all of that is formative. That is God shaping me. And so my love for God is saying, God, you are at the top of my list. And that means you get to do with me whatever it is you want to do with me. But then the horizontal piece, love your neighbor as yourself. We have two different kinds of neighbors. We've got the neighbors in the family of God, the neighbors that that I have a special family relationship with. And we have the neighbors who are not yet in the family of God, but can be. And so my approach to them is going to be different than my approach to these people over here. But nonetheless, love is the thing that categorizes both. And if I'm going to be sacrificially loving my family, then we also need to be sacrificially loving the world around us. Which leads me to the second passage. It's called the Great Commission. And it comes from the end of Matthew. Matthew writes this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus, his final words, this is what he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says two things. He says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to make people like you. But you do it in two ways. You baptize them, which means you welcome them into the family to the point where they want to turn their lives around. Welcome them into the family to the point where they want to turn their lives around. And then number two, train them so they look as much like Jesus as you're supposed to look. Train them, develop them. Now I know not all of you feel like trainers or teachers, but this is our calling. It's our calling to be in a love relationship with God and the world around us. And to do in the process The work of being like Jesus, training others to be like Jesus, and welcoming people in. These are the core values of our church. Simply God comes first, and then we want to focus on the community relationship that we have together as a family. Then we focus on growing spiritually, no matter how much pain that brings into our lives. And then we focus on doing works of ministry and service. And so I've got four things I want to share with you four final phrases that I want to encourage you. They're explanations of our core values. Every January, I would expand on these things, especially at the end when it's time for our Commitment Sunday. But I just rephrased them all last night. These are my own paraphrase of the ideas all over again. And these are the four basic core principles that I think all of us need to be doing, all of us need to be living. And just so you know, I'm going to give you some opportunity to do a question and answer thing with me at the end here. So if you have any questions you want to put into your app, you can go ahead and do so. But let me share with you these four phrases. Number one, I want you to put God first above all other authorities and priorities by devoting yourself to understanding his word and following his son in contrast to the lies and deceptions of the world. No authority. No authority deserves your loyalty other than Jesus. No information claims your heart and mind other than the word of God itself. And everything gets filtered through who Jesus is and what the word says. No matter what it is, we put God first. Number two, I want to ask you to treat the church as your family, giving of yourself to the church and opening yourself to receive from the church by embracing love, patience, understanding and forgiveness. I say it every January. Someone in this church this year is going to make you mad. Reggie in a couple weeks is going to he's going to preach some message and you're going to hear him say something that you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. He's going to have a southern accent that is hiding sometimes and other times completely is not. And he's going to tell a joke that you're going to think is funny but the person next to you is going to think is not funny. And some of you are going to get offended by Reggie or you're going to get offended by someone else. Some of you are going to fall in love with Reggie and you're not going to want anyone else to come in after him. And there's going to be all kinds of possibilities for you to be irritated with each other. And I'm telling you right now, great Because it's when we're irritated with each other that we become family, as long as we're committed to sticking around with each other, as long as we're committed to enduring in family with each other. Everybody has that annoying uncle, and if you never, ever see him, maybe that's a good thing for your family, but maybe it's not a good thing. So don't just leave be people who are willing to explore what family looks like even more deeply by being people who embrace love and patience and understanding and forgiveness. Number three, I want to ask you to commit yourself to continual transformation through the pursuit of knowledge, the endurance of faith, and the increase of love. We grow when we're challenged. We grow when times are not easy. And sometimes we have to create the challenge. Pursuing knowledge requires my own study, which requires me to challenge myself to learn a new thing. But also, endurance, just being faithful in the midst of a weird time, that's a place of growth. And choosing to love more than you think is possible is another place where God will grow you. So commit yourself to continual transformation, understanding that God is not done with you yet. And then fourthly, spend yourself to bless others by serving them, modeling Christ to them, proclaiming the good news to them, and walking with them in their journey of growth. I want you to spend yourself, invest yourself, at times even empty yourself to serve people around you. We have an amazing opportunity to show this world how much they are loved. Because right now, our world doesn't feel very loved. Our world feels like hate is around every corner. And if there's anyone who can break through those walls, it would be the people who follow Jesus. Not the people who follow the doctrines of Jesus or the passages of Jesus or the stories of Jesus, but the people who follow Jesus, because Jesus is the one who would break through walls to show someone how much they are loved. So spend yourself to model Christ and serve and bless other people. At times, you will need to speak the words of the good news. At times, you will need to walk with those other people in their own journey of growth up and down. But I want you to say, this is who I am. This is who we are. We're a group of people who does this work. And so, uh, this is your last chance to ask me anything. Um, We're going to have communion in a little bit. But if you have a lingering question, if you have a doctrinal question, a thing that you have been afraid to ask me up until now, I will now officially disclaim that the words that I say from this point forward are not the official position of this church. <laughs> but um, if so, if, if you ask me something that is too controversial, I might defer. But if you ask me something, I might give you just my own opinion and then we can cut it out of the YouTube later on if that's something that we need to do. But um, the, the words that I say from this point forward are my own opinion, not necessarily the official position of the church. But do we have any questions that have come in? Is this too much of a risk for us today? Are you going to look for a new church in Upland, or are you going to join our live stream to spy on us? The answer is yes. <laughs> so... Um, so, of course, the answer is yes, because you guys have the absolute best live stream of any church that I have seen smaller than 6,000 people. And believe me, Chuck and I inspect other churches' live streams, and they're terrible. But so, yeah, of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be checking this out just to see what latest camera work Chuck is doing, and, and I... I like Reggie, he makes me laugh, and so I'll be I'll be tuning into that sometimes too. Also, next week, I hope, if if the weather is clear enough, I hope that I can be here myself, and maybe Jen, we don't know, but I hope that I can be here myself next week uh, for Reggie's first Sunday, because I think that would be fun. But um as far as finding a church in Upland, boy howdy, that's gonna be weird. Because for 20 years, I've been the pastor of a church somewhere. And so finding some other church to attend, uh, both Jen and I are afraid of that. Um, we're going we're gonna to do some church hopping for a while and figure out what makes a lot of sense for us and um, do some experimentation and maybe take some risks. Someone said down their glasses. Yeah, this is only the second time I have ever worn glasses in front of you all. And so some of you have never seen me in glasses. But yes, I wear glasses. Left the contacts in Upland today and so could not wear them. And that's why I have the glasses on. Um, how do we judge a new pastor? Harshly. You... <laughs> Compare him in every detail to me. And if he doesn't match up, then just simply let him know on a daily basis, on a daily basis, how dissatisfied you are with everything that is different. Um, Here's the thing. You want a person who is passionate about Jesus and his word. You judge according to scripture You judge your leaders on their character and their adherence to the truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean truth in the way of the modern media, Facebook, whoever you think is truthful on those platforms. I'm not talking about anything sort of modern opinion-ish. I'm saying you evaluate them on how well they know their Bible, what it really says and what it doesn't say, and how well they live their Bible through the lens of who Jesus is. Every one of you could be a pastor because the qualifications are knowing the Bible, living the Bible, and then telling people. How do you judge a pastor? Well, hopefully you evaluate them against Jesus and then you give them all the grace that you want Jesus to give you. Uh, Let's go on to the next one. What does the Bible say about suicide? Sadly, nothing about what happens after suicide. There are suicides in the Bible, and um, they are always in the context of a person who has previously been evaluated to not be a good person. Um, Jonah, when he gets thrown off of the ship, everybody thinks that he he is actually committing suicide. That he says, throw me off the ship. He didn't expect a, a big fish to swallow him up and then carry him off to Nineveh. He didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, he, he thought he was dying. But God said, nope. I told you I had a job for you. I'm going to have the job for you. And so he stopped that one. Saul commits suicide. We saw just a couple months ago when we were looking at the book of, of Second Sam, First Samuel. Saul commits suicide. And it's widely understood that that was a mistake. That was an act of cowardice on his part. Judas commits suicide after he betrays Jesus. And there it seems like that's an act of remorse, where he is so remorseful over his actions and so sorry for what he did that he can't live with himself. And so he commits suicide. But the Bible doesn't evaluate, it doesn't give us any instructions, nor does it evaluate anything about that. The closest we get is the command to not murder. And so the command to not murder would ostensibly include yourself. And so I think the Bible indicates that suicide is a thing that you should not do. And God definitely has a plan for your life and definitely has a goal for you that he wants you to move towards. But if some of you know someone who has committed suicide, that's not one of these places where now you say they're beyond the hope and grace of God. We don't know what God was doing in that person's heart and in that person's life and in that person's soul. No one can and no one does. And so that's one of those moments where you say, God, show mercy. And in the day when I finally meet you face to face, help me to understand. And that's about all that we can say about it. How many calories in that bag of M&Ms? Well, let's see. There are, 11, there are 11 servings, and each serving has 140 calories. So that is 1540, 1540 calories. So it's only about, I mean, it's a low day of calories, right? I get 2,000 a day, don't I? Lots of protein. I think lots of protein. Yeah, we got all those peanuts. I think that's good. Um, what's my favorite donut? Did someone ask me that last time? For some reason... But I, I'm thinking about it. Actually, I like a good French cruller. You know, with all that airy spaces on the inside and it's all kind of twisty. But, but let's just be honest. I have never had a donut I didn't like. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with pretty much all of them. Are you going to remember the letter E? Thank you, Jessica. Uh, this last week, I was at a store that had Christmas mugs and they had one mug that had a giant E on it. And I came this close to buying it for you, but then everybody else would have been jealous. I and so, have one. so, okay, <laughs> there you go. If the LCC app breaks, who will fix it? I will for a fee. <laughs> just, I don't know. Chuck and I are friends. We'll, I'll, I'll be helping him learn how to do Flutter, the language that we programmed it in, and, and I'm eager to continue helping out with what's going on around here. Not to mention, I I like working on the app. So is there a podcast you would recommend to help with personal Bible study? Um, I don't listen to Bible study podcasts right now because frankly, I'm irritated by a lot of people who are claiming to teach the Bible on the internet. But I'll give you a couple of things that that I personally have been super blessed with. I am hugely blessed by the ministry of Andy Stanley. And so if you're unfamiliar with that name, Andy Stanley is the son of Pastor Charles Stanley in in Atlanta. But Andy Stanley's church is North Point Community Church. And he is the only pastor I know who is as honest about Scripture as I think we should be. Um... And he is exceptionally good at helping un-Christian, non-Christian people get a good idea of what Christianity should be. So I highly recommend him. He's got a couple podcasts. His sermon podcast is what I listen to. Jen listens to his leadership podcast. I like that a lot. Uh, but as far as Bible study goes, I can't emphasize this enough. I want you to read it. I want you to read it. And you're not gonna understand it all the time. So what I want you to do is write down everything you don't understand and then find someone and ask them what that is. Find someone and ask them what your question is. Um, there were a few others up there. Did we lose them? Oh, there we go. Uh, what's going on in Matthew 27, 51 through 53? I don't have that memorized. Matthew 27, um, is that where Jesus says to Mary, don't hug me because I haven't gone back to the Father yet? Look it up. Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-one. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The best I can tell you of what's going on in this passage is that the curtain in the temple was torn in two and then um, when Jesus rose from the grave, other people rose too and went into the city and told them that they were alive again. That's the explanation of the passage. There are going to be a lot of people who jump off of that and give you all kinds of additional things. For example, They might say, this is an illustration of the fact that Jesus, when he died and rose again, the wall between God and man was now open. Well, it is true, but that's not what the passage teaches. Later in the book of Hebrews, there is a mention of the curtain and the curtain now being available for us to pass through. But Matthew doesn't give us an explanation for why the curtain was torn in two. And so for us to think we know is going beyond what Matthew actually said. Now, I think it's true that that curtain might be a symbol of this, and I might even use that myself metaphorically in some way. But it's different from us saying Matthew is trying to tell us that the way for us to enter the Holy of Holies is now open. Um, It most likely is that, but we can't say it for certain. Because what Matthew just tells us is that the curtain was torn. How would anyone know that? Only the priests could go into the outer area to see the curtain being torn. So no normal person could get into the temple area to see that the curtain was torn. So it's a, it's a weird thing. It's a cool thing. But it's something that we can't draw a lot of conclusions from. And uh, it doesn't show up in a lot of other places with explanation. The people who rose from the dead, for crying out loud, that's awesome. The other people rose from the dead when Jesus rose from the dead. And for whatever reason, that story doesn't circulate more widely. I'm fascinated by that lack of greater circulation, but it just hasn't. And I think it's it's an example of how Jesus' resurrection power was so great that it spilled over into the people around him too. But again, Matthew doesn't give us any explanation. He's just simply trying to say, this was awesome. Awesome things happened in this moment. And we don't know too much more than that. Um, Service Sunday speaks of challenging Christians into serving others. A challenging move to have members of the church serve others would be to challenging their own time at night or afternoon. A challenge to Christians would be to sacrifice more time, not that time that is already given. Yeah, uh, there are two things going on here. One is what I would say the guilt motivation that Christians are addicted to. And the other one is the lazy motivation that Christians are addicted to. And they they go like this. There are some people who are all about service because God has wired them up that way, who find it easy to judge the other people who are wired differently and do service in a different way. And so it's easy for some people to say, we need to do a better job of challenging those people. Back when I was in Chicago, I was in a meeting, and it was the meeting of the leaders of the church, the the 20% of the people who did 80% of the work, because that's the way it always works in churches. And as we were sitting in that meeting, one leader after the other was complaining about all the people in the church who weren't doing anything to help them. And I asked every one of them, well, who have you asked to help you? And none of them had an answer. Because see, the thing about leadership is that leadership says, come and join me. Come and join me in this thing. And so challenge is a way of pointing your finger at someone else to say, you should do this thing. And I believe what God is calling us to do is to be people who say, come and join me in this thing. I'm going to do this thing. Come along with me. I'm going to go serve the poor. Come along with me. That kind of stuff. So I like to think of it more as invitation than challenge. Nevertheless, we are very much tempted as Christians to either feel guilty or be lazy or both. And we use the feelings of guilt to excuse our laziness. And so sometimes Christians get into this place where they want the guy on stage to challenge them so that they feel guilty that they aren't living the Christian life well enough. Because guilt is very close to remorse and remorse feels like repentance and repentance is spiritual. And so as a result, if the person challenges them and they feel guilty about it, then they go home feeling like they've had this sort of mental, social, emotional, spiritual awareness, but then they don't do anything about it. And that's one of the reasons why as a church, we need to operate in the the realm of community and having people doing things together. We invite each other to do service with each other. So I don't know if that directly answers that question, but it is a couple of my own personal pet peeves um, when it comes to how Christians view other Christians and whether we invite or accuse or whatever that might be. Please talk about Mary not hugging Jesus. Oh, for crying out loud. Okay, as I think about it, I now think it was probably in the Gospel of John. So Mary, Mary is lingering in the garden, and while she's lingering in the garden, Jesus shows up, and he says, Mary, and she hears her voice. She, immediately, she initially thinks he's the gardener, but then later on realizes it's Jesus. She comes and grabs him, and he says, Don't hold on to me because I have not yet returned to my father. No one knows the answer to that. There are some ideas. The most popular idea is that Jesus has just made his way out of the tomb but he needs to go somewhere to receive a heavenly body so that then he can be alive for longer. And like this is some sort of temporary. He's on his way up to heaven to receive a heavenly glorified body. And Mary is trying to hold on to him and, and keep him. And he's like, no, I gotta go. Cause you know, I'm only partial. I'm zombie Jesus right now. I need to become glorified Jesus. That's what some thought is. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what Jesus is saying is, Mary, I'm not going to be here forever. Just because I'm back now doesn't mean I'm staying here forever. So don't get too attached. That's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, don't get too attached to me because I'm still going to be leaving to go back to my father in heaven. But no one really knows the answer to that. That's what I think. Um, Do you believe that we have a guardian angel? Jesus says it. But it's it's weird how he says it. He talks about little children and he uses this phrase. He says, their angels are watching them. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why we should treat children well, because they're angels. But nowhere in the rest of the Bible does it say anything else even close to that. So do individual children have individual angels? Maybe. We don't know. Jesus just simply mentioned that there are angels who somehow are aware of something going on with children. But that's as far as it goes. Do we have a guardian angel? I don't know. Do we have angels watching out for each one of us? We don't know. There's almost nothing in the Bible about what the jobs of angels are. Do you believe in ghosts and spirits? I believe in lies. I believe that Satan is the father of lies and he can figure out all kinds of ways to make us believe a thing that is not true. Now, we definitely know that spirits are real because God is a spirit. Jesus tells us that we definitely know that we have a spirit because scripture tells us that we have a spirit. We definitely know that there is the possibility of one who has formerly been dead coming back to talk to people because Jesus did it. Lazarus did it. And we also know of spiritual manifestations, of spiritual beings in the real world. Gabriel was a spiritual being who showed up to Mary. Samuel was a spiritual being who showed up to Saul back in that story. You know that. And so we know that those things are real. But all of the modern stuff about like poltergeists and ghosts haunting a building or spirits shutting doors behind you, we, there's no biblical evidence of any of that kind of stuff like spirits that exist to just mess with us. I personally don't believe that any dead human is a ghost walking around on the earth. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's reasonable. Um, Do demons exist? For sure. Do they sometimes close doors? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it. So every time someone tells me that they've had an encounter and experience with a spiritual being like a ghost or, or, something along those lines, my approach is always two things. Number one, Jesus, 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 his name has got more authority in it than any other name. Those who have a relationship with Jesus have something that the, the powers of Satan cannot stand against resist Satan, Satan and he will flee from you. The new Testament tells us. So all you need to do is be a Jesus follower. If you're a Jesus follower, you're, you're good, you're safe with regard to all of that spiritual forces kind of whatnot. Uh, that's clear, that's biblically clear. Jesus first and foremost. And then all the other stuff, I simply say, there are so many ways that Satan is trying to lie to us. Call it out as a lie. Call it out as a deception and get back to Jesus. That's my general term, my general understanding. However, I do also know that some places in this world experience spiritual forces in a more realistic and present way than I've ever personally experienced. And so my mind and my heart is open to such things. I've heard many stories of missionaries in foreign parts of the world who've expressed things about spiritual oppression of some kind. And I've known people in Lafayette who've experienced... you know, moments of spiritual oppression of some kind. And I don't judge anyone else's experience. I'm just trying to say that Satan knows how to lie and Jesus has already conquered it all. And those are the two things that I kind of hang on. Where do I get my news? Uh, Currently the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic, all are um, media outlets that have been accused at various points in time of being very liberal. And so especially I like reading the conservative columnists at those places to see how they're reacting to the uh, liberal bias, perhaps, of their peers. And then I also look at research that tries to tell me uh, where the different media outlets are on the spectrum of conservative versus liberal political platforms. And the ones that I've chosen are all in the middle, slightly to the, from your perspective, slightly to the left, And so the bigger outlets tend to lean left on the charts, but I go ahead and get my news from the people who are um, investing their entire lives in such reporting work. Where do I go to to help explain my phone questions (laughs) or issues? Is that you, Diane? (laughs) Um, Well, Chuck is great at that stuff, but I've got a phone you can call me. Um, I've got uh, many ways that you can reach out to me for personal things. I'm still your friend. I still love you guys. There's a widely held story among pastors that goes like this. It says, I would love being a pastor if it weren't for the people. Okay. It's a joke among pastors that the worst part about the job are the people. And I would say there have been many times in my life as a pastor so far where I have said those same words. But I have not said those words about you people in this room. That as far as I'm concerned, uh, you guys are the reasons to be a pastor. And I think you guys are great. And so if you call me up and you're like, hey, I need to talk about something or I need to get some help doing something silly on my phone or whatever. I'm I'm eager to continue to be part of your family as long as you're willing to let me be part of your family however I can. But um, I want to end our time by reading a passage of scripture from first Corinthians. It's a passage where Paul says, above all other things, here's the thing I want you to know. Take a look at it. It's from 1 Corinthians. He says, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep going. He says, for in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That last line is not in quotations because that's the Apostle Paul who's saying this. He quotes Jesus, and then he adds his own thing. And I want you to grasp this. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, here's some bread. And when you eat this bread, at the time it was the bread from the Passover meal. It was normal Passover bread. But he said, here's this bread. And from this time forward, when you eat it, I want you to think of my body, which was broken for you. And then he took some normal Passover wine and he gave it to them and he said, every time you drink this, I want you to remember my blood shed for you. And then the Apostle Paul says that we today, and for him it was only just a couple decades after that, but the Apostle Paul says, we today... Every time we do this, every time we eat this bread, every time we drink from this cup, every time we proclaim the Lord's death. And if you put the period there, it would have all been accurate. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, it proclaims the Lord's death. Because Jesus himself said, my body which is broken, my blood which is spilled. But Paul adds... One tiny little phrase that Jesus couldn't have said on that night, because on that original night, he was about to go to the cross, but hadn't been yet. The next day he would be crucified that evening. He would be in a tomb. He would be dead. And so for everybody, Jesus, death, body broken, blood poured out makes perfect sense But something happened after he died. Something happened after he died that let Paul know Jesus was not a dead person. Jesus was a living person who was away for the moment and was coming back. You see, that Sunday Jesus rose from the dead. And the broken body and the spilled blood took on brand new meaning. These were not the normal things of death. These were now markers of a miraculous life. These were markers of something that had never happened before, a resurrection. And so then Paul says, we proclaim his death, (laughs) but not just his death. We proclaim his death in the past until he comes again in the future. Paul had a forward-looking view at what Jesus' death and resurrection really meant. And so today, as we share communion with each other, just like normal, we've got some gluten-free on either side. We're going to have a final song. I want to invite you to come forward and spend a moment in prayer. Take one of the little cups. We've got bread on the bottom. We've got juice you can peel off the top and, and drink the juice. But I want you to do that today with a recognition that what Jesus did in the past made everything new. And that allows us to live towards the future. And so we as people live declaring who Jesus was, who he is, and who he will be again as he comes back one of these days. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you, and His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.